This is the Enneagram 8 Podcast, and we're here to take you inside the armor. Okay, I'm not even going to be able to hide my bias this time, guys. This man has probably impacted me more than any other of the Enneagram teachers that I've come across by a long shot. There's something about his compassion and his insight, his ability to hold eights in his heart, to champion them, to understand them is really second to none. Dr. Jerome Lubba is a name that you have heard us mention several times on this podcast. He is a functional neurologist and has written the book that shaped my understanding of Enneagram the most. That book is called The Brain-Based Enneagram. If you go back and listen to our episode seven called Joe's Enneagram 8 Podcast Manifesto, you'll hear exactly how impacted I was by that book. Jerome also has a podcast that is incredibly helpful called Thrive Neurotheology Podcast. In this interview, you're going to basically detect in my voice a constant battle against tears. I was so close to crying so many times as he managed to vocalize the kind of understanding and compassion that uh, you and I have probably failed to encounter so many times in our lives. I can hold him up as an example of how we should all be to hold everyone around us with such compassion and understanding, and yet we fail to do that all the time. I hope this episode speaks to you as powerfully as it spoke to me and helps give you some keys that will help you move towards other people in a really profound way. As I said in the intro, I think now more than ever, the world needs eights to be sources of powerful love. There you are. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> so good to hear your voice. Likewise. We're just very pleased that you made the time. I just think it's important more than ever <laughs> for people high in eight energy to get healthy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, it's interesting that the more and more that people are finding out about the work, I forget that oh, the wow. work is out there because I'm in the clinic right. so consistently that when people are like, yeah, I read your book. I was like, oh, right. I wrote a book. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's more in line with my understanding of it than anything else I've read. So there was just a bunch that I just could not subscribe to with a lot of the writers. And this one just fit. Sure. It really fit. I just thought it would be good to start with the work you do and how the Enneagram became something that fit into that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I, I was like a lot of people with the Enneagram. I was proselytized, <laughs> um, so to speak. I, uh, I had a good friend of mine that I've known for about 15 years that was just so adamant about it. And I was in the middle of doing my doctorate about 11 years ago. And for context, I was doing about 120 credits per calendar year. And I was driving round trip 10 hours a week. So it was not a light schedule. Let's put it that way. And I told him, you know, I just, I really don't have time to commit to anything like a personality profile. But he goes, I just have a feeling that this is something that would really, really suit you and be up your alley. So it took about six months of him kind of giving me a call once a, a month or once every few weeks and being like, you, have you read anything yet? I said, I haven't. And he goes, well, don't you, don't you commute back and forth like an hour one way? I said, I do. He goes, well, why don't I send you an audio recording? And when I was listening to it on this drive, I was listening to it and I was in the middle of doing a neurochemistry specialty certification. And I thought to myself, 
man, this sounds a lot like basic mm-hmm. brain function, right? And I, I specialize in what's called functional neurology, which means that we take all of the things that we understand about the anatomy of the brain and we turn it into practical exercises, just using how we know the brain works. So I got the wisdom of the Enneagram by Hudson and, and mm-hmm. Riso. It was the first time that I had even seen the picture of the Enneagram. And the very first time I thought, I was like, well, this is kind of weird. Why would the gut be above the head and the gut be above the heart? Even without any understanding of the Enneagram or neurology, it feels like that's a person that's upside down. And also looking at the heart, head, and gut, I was like, well, man, those feel a lot like the basics of the central nervous system, like left brain, right brain, brain stem. I had this weird like matrix moment where I learned Kung Fu. I turned the Enneagram upside, I flipped it, inverted it vertically upside down. And over the course of about four hours, just charted out a couple of really standard things about the anatomy of the brain. And that was 11 years ago. And the last 11 years has been going, is it possible to connect the dots with the actual structure and function of the brain with the actual structure and function of the Enneagram? And that's how it ended up leading to the brain-based Enneagram. Why don't you just tell us about eight energy and what what that means about our brains? <laughs> Let's start there. <laughs> Sounds good. We can totally do that. You know, it's interesting, uh, especially because I'm eight's kind of a what I refer to as a pivot point for me. So when I go through the profile of somebody or I go through my stuff, it's what you're efficient or inefficient in, what you're kind of natural in and unnatural in. And eight's not supernatural for me. It's it's mm-hmm. very high for both my twin brother and my older brother. My dad mm-hmm. was probably one of the strongest eights I've ever met. Yes. Um, right. I, I'll say what happens in the brain and then connect some of the, the kind of lived experience that I had with it. Um, I think probably the most the most easy way to access what happens in the brain for eight is that you everybody's got a natural fight, fight uh, or freeze response. <laughs> I've been talking a lot nowadays about a fawn response, hmm. but realistically, eight energy is very, very normal for a human being to use when they feel like they need to be assertive. So you can think of these things through passive aggressiveness, passiveness, aggressiveness, being assertive, being withdrawn, right? Being mm-hmm. ob- obligated. So you hear these things in Enneagram language too. But the eight is just really the part of the brain that deals with what's called sympathetics. It deals with a fight or flight freeze response, but really more than anything, its particular version of showing up in the world when it gets triggered or it gets provoked is to be more assertive, to have an increased relationship with adrenaline. You know, one of the things that I connect for folks that's super easy to, to see for most people is eight energy is pretty addicted to adrenaline. It's pretty addicted to cortisol and, you know, all these things that make us feel kinetic. Um, (laughs) Nine, even though it's a next door neighbor on the same continent, um, nine is allergic to adrenaline. And one is constantly polarized between the two. You know, it's trying trying to figure out how to find a balance between both increased energy and decreased energy. From just a a basic biology, basic neurology standpoint, you can just see eight energy as a gas pedal. That's a pretty safe way to approach why an eight shows up the way they do is they're more inclined to say, what does it look like for me to have a really intimate relationship with increased energy in order to survive? Their survival strategy is just tied to more assertiveness than it is withdrawal. There are a lot of people who identify as high in eight and nine. So how can that work, neurologically speaking, to be both addicted and allergic? That's my lowest number, one of my lowest. So that to me makes sense. But there's a lot of people who would actually identify as being high in both, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, if you start the conversation with the idea of it's tied to efficiency and proficiency and develop skill, right? So I'll use a comparison of my lived experience and then I'll answer eight and nine. Um, so I was born in South Africa to parents, to a mom who was born in England, immigrated to Kenya when she was one and was raised in Rhodesia her entire life before it became Zimbabwe. My dad's side of the family is Zimbabwe. And I moved from South Africa to the Congo in Zaire before it became the Democratic Republic of Congo. Came to the States in the early 90s on asylum status as a refugee to Northeast Tennessee when I was seven. And I went to 11 different schools before I graduated high school. Did my undergrad in Arizona. And now I've been in Atlanta for 17 years. So mm-hmm. when somebody asks me, who am I and where am I from? How do I effectively, mm. how do I effectively answer that, right? Mm-hmm. Also, my dad spoke 13 languages. Nine of them were tribal, right? So he was pretty fluent in a lot of different things. So when I say that as a comparison, as a human being, the ability to, to move in a lot of different spaces and a lot of different places, we are doing whatever we have been put into the environment to do in order to survive. It's our fluency. It's our efficiency. It's our skill. It's our developed capacity, right? So Mm -hmm. if I'm looking at somebody who's high in eight and low in nine, I'm looking at somebody who was forced or had the opportunity based on it being really life-giving. It can be both, either a trauma Mm -hmm. response or reward response. They just speak what eight connects to really fluently and they don't speak nine as fluently. So what does it look like practically? Somebody who's super high in an eight, but very, very low in a nine is not going to be as comfortable with a change in pace as somebody who's even in eight and nine. Eight is designed mm-hmm. to be a driver. It wants to move forward, right? Mm-hmm. So if if the eight is not in the driver's seat, uh, it's really awkward for them. So easy way to know if you're, if you're high in eight and low in nine or kind of your relationship between the two is how comfortable are you allowing someone else to drive? Literally, yeah. if, you, if you're low in nine, <laughs> you're going to be pretty unlikely to be comfortable mm-hmm. with somebody yeah. driving. But if you're higher in nine, <laughs> The degree to which it's easy for you to let someone else take control or take lead or take the driver's seat is probably mm-hmm. a pretty good indication of how much nine you have in you. Because for you to relinquish control, to step back and to slow down, you have to be able to speak nine. Eight is, mm-hmm. eight is tied to disruption and growth and autonomy and not being held down and not being restricted, you know, so... When you're allergic to incompetence, like eight is, it's it's hard to let other people lead, you yeah. know? So. Yeah. yeah, my lowest numbers all have to do with that kind of thing, with, with waiting for something to come to you or <laughs> like my lowest numbers are five, nine and six. So it says a lot about how unsafe it feels to go along. Like it feels like a blind going along or, or a risk to wait for something to come to you and it feels safer for me to just move at the thing and uh, just see what happens when I get there. I don't need to assess. I just want to go. And I just trust myself somehow that I will, and it's worked out is the problem, right? That's why it's hard to make the leap to try something new is it's worked for me somewhat, of course, somewhat, because obviously. Yeah, but enough that you're still alive, right? <laughs> That's right. But enough that I've caused a lot of hurt um, and not sure. maybe made space for other people and not slowed down before I've acted. But yeah, I thought it was interesting doing the Rizzo Hudson test and realizing that the lowest numbers all had to do with kind of going along with a crowd or a group. And the top ones were all about individuation. And yeah, the top is eight, seven, and four. <laughs> 
We are so excited to share something new we've been working on. We have now launched the Enneagram 8 community. This is a community where Enneagram 8s can come together to feel seen and heard for the heart of who they are, a place where you can just be you. If you're interested in joining us here, go to the Enneagram8community.com to sign up. It's, it's also, it gives you such an opportunity for grace and such an opportunity for permission to be able to go, man, when I was seven, eight, nine years old and I was developing so much of my psyche, I didn't know what all of this meant. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm working off of instinct and survival strategies. And a few survival strategies that have been reinforced because of your confirmation bias and also because of really legitimate experiences that you've had as an adolescent, as a teenager, as a young adult, as an adult, right? All of these things reinforce what our brain believes to be true, whether it's real or not, it's definitely relevant, right? And it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be real. It just has to be relevant. But you're Mm -hmm. looking at eight, seven, and four being high. It's like, yeah, I mean, if, if I'm going to take care of, if nobody's going to take care of me effectively, then I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to take into mm-hmm. consideration what I need and, you know, center myself in the conversation. And I'm going to have, a, I'm, I'm sure it's all going to have a good time doing it because I, I can't guarantee <laughs> on you creating that. It's like, yeah, that, that, that feels like a really viable pathway, right? But then if you look at five, nine, and six, it, uh, one of the ways that I, I encourage people, Joe, on, on this sort of space when they start thinking about how all of the energies and all the capacities show up in them rather than being a type is to start mm-hmm. asking questions like, what is my relative relationship with fill in the blank, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if I, if you know that nine, five and six come up low for you and you're like, well, I don't know how exactly that shows up in my life. You can say, just look at the gifts, for instance, or look at the motivations of those numbers. The gift of, mm-hmm. of nine is rest. So you go, what is my relative relationship with rest? Does that come right. easily for me? If you're low in nine, probably not, right? If mm-hmm. you're low in five, what's my relative relationship with clarity or ambiguity? You know, do I have a lot of clarity? Do I have a lot of understanding about things that feel ambiguous? Probably not as much. For six, it's like you said something really interesting, even in the language that you use, you know, I trust myself, but The six energy is not about trusting yourself. It's about trusting and not exclusively. It's actually about trusting other people and then trusting yourself based on your decision with that. So is the question becomes, what's your relative relationship with trust and your relative relationship with trust was I, well, I, I know based on my lifetime of experiences, I can trust myself. And even then that might be, that might be a false perception, but I know for sure one Mm -hmm. thing I can't do is trust you. You know, mm-hmm. and then that becomes the opportunity for healing because you're like, why am I avoiding nine, five, and six? So, and it's not intentional. It's actually an auto. Mm-hmm. It's an autopilot response. So it's actually that you're unintentionally biased away from it. But was that yeah. was that created in a space when you were young? Can you create a safe space? Like we haven't met each other in person, but are you mm-hmm. able to hear my voice and hear my response and go? I can trust that voice. I can hear mm-hmm. that and give my brain a data mm-hmm. point that six is not a, a dirty language that you're not allowed to speak, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so a practical question then would be, given that it's me and I just listed the four energies I'm least comfortable with accessing, if you could give some 
you know, practical ways for people in eight energy to reach into five, nine, and six in particular, and start to just sit in the discomfort of, um, yeah, I guess accessing something that we have subconsciously told ourselves isn't safe. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of ways to be able to do that, but more than anything, knowing for an eight that it has to be very, very quickly accessible. Okay. It can't be, yeah. it's it's make, making it okay and making it safe to name that two of those numbers are in the head triad and the eight is not about overthinking it, right? Mm-hmm. And also knowing that the nine is polarized to the eight about slowing down. And if somebody tells an eight, well, why don't you just take a vacation or take a day off or slow down or <laughs> pump the brakes? That's a terrible idea, okay? I think part of it is knowing that you're naturally inclined to move at a particular speed. So instead of trying to find an answer and find a solution, it's actually just checking in with what your current pace is. That's the on-ramp. Because an eight is naturally, no matter what your instinct is, an eight is naturally going to be inclined to move at a different pace than most of the other, mm-hmm. other numbers. So a really practical thing, uh, first and foremost, before you do anything, especially to engage nine, is to just take a deep breath. Right, because you'll mm-hmm. you'll even hear as you're dialoguing with somebody or you're interacting with somebody, your body, your language, and your nonverbal communication has a chance of being more frequent. You're, mm-hmm. you're going to be moving and thinking and expressing and making some sort of sound. That's totally okay. That's awesome. Lots of hand gestures. Yeah, lots of hand <laughs> gestures and and lots of yeah. Mm, I get that. Right, and that's not a negative. Yeah. That's not a critique. Yeah, that's an awareness mm-hmm. piece of going. What? When's the last time that I went? yeah because here's the thing Mm -hmm. i always joke with my friends and my my clients and my patients that are high in eight it's kind of (laughs) it's kind of useless for me to give you a lot of practical applications if taking 10 seconds to do one single deep breath (laughs) feels like a waste of time (laughs) yes fair that is fair (laughs) (laughs) if i give you anything that takes longer than 10 seconds it's not gonna happen right? I need to give you an on-ramp. And the on-ramp to access nine is to take a deep breath. And the funny thing is everybody Mm. will be like, yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And we'll be an hour into the conversation (laughs) and I go, so so you're going to take that deep breath? Did you do it yet? Did you do it yet? (laughs) (laughs) No, but give me something. Give me something. Give me something. I'll pull the trigger. (laughs) That's so funny. But take take a deep breath. Yeah. Change your pace. Check in with how fast you're going. Other ways that you can connect with five and six. And also it's one of those things to, to name it for eight as well, even in the way that I just did that, right? The way I changed my tone, the way I changed my pace, the way I invite you into that. I have, to, mm-hmm. I have to know as someone in relationship with people who are high in eight, that if I slow you down, even in my cadence, mm-hmm. your brain is going to push back about the safety of that experience. The only way that you will stay present to that is if you feel like I have a high enough degree of authority and confidence to keep you safe. That's what keeps you Mm. in the conversation. So on the other side of an Mm -hmm. eight, I have to be aware of that, that if I slow you down and you don't have equity with me and you don't feel like I have competency or authority, I'm actually going to trigger you. And even if I do it really well, I still have a chance of triggering you, right? So Mm -hmm. you got to invite an eight into the breath. You can't tell them to breathe until you feel safe enough to do so. And then they might actually trust you even more because you demanded it. It depends on the bird. That is, that is true. It depends on on the version of the eight. (laughs) Because a self-preservation eight, I won't do that with. A self-preservation eight, I'll model the breath. But a sexual eight, Mm. an assertive eight, I'll tell them to. 
That's yeah. me, by the way. Yeah, I'd yeah. Be like you have to mm-hmm. stop. You have to breathe. I need you to do that at least two more times before you say anything else. And you'll go, mm-hmm. okay, I hear you. Thank you for the clear authority on that. But it's different, yeah. right? It's yeah. different. For the yeah. five and the six, a way that I, I would recommend that you connect to that as an eight is through an analogy or through a metaphor, because trying to give somebody something that's really complicated and over-intellectualized, eights are already allergic to incompetence in other people. <laughs> but if I create even a mm-hmm. even a, a small degree, a small sense of felt incompetence in you, that'll trigger you even faster than my incompetence. Well, you don't want to feel incompetent mm-hmm. in your own body, right? So yeah. yeah, we want you to be clear with us, succinct to the point. Yeah, and do not make me feel dumb, mm-hmm. right? So yes, amen. Yeah. Why I say that is, let me give you an intentional analogy that I always call my eight energy friends, especially the sexual eight. You're more like a Formula One car. And a Formula mm-hmm. One car can go 250 miles an hour with ease, right? Very skilled mm-hmm. driver, very capable vehicle, right? But the reality is, is there are a few spaces on the Enneagram that will crash harder and do more damage than the than yes. actual eight specifically. Because you're, yes. you're going 215 miles an hour. So if you're winning and you're not crashing, it's a pretty darn good experience. And it can be great for everybody else yeah. too. It's very entertaining. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the thing that allows a Formula One driver to win which is ultimately the goal. Did we end up in a space where we actually made it out alive, right? Did we finish the race? (laughs) Did we finish the race? And not only did we not run anybody over, but did we win the race in a way that everybody else was able to actually physically participate in that with us? We we kept them alive and we kept them going for the next season, right? Yeah, I've always felt honestly like the world is a dry forest and I'm a fire. And I always feel like... I have the potential to burn it all down. It's something I'm very aware of uh, a lot of the time. And that's part of my health journey is I just, I never want to do that again. <laughs> no, and that actually just to, to intersect that example and then come back to the Formula One, this is why I always talk to mm-hmm. talk to people about the Enneagram and clinical spaces about a reframe. Because if you understand you mm-hmm. have that energy in you and it's appropriately channeled, it is profoundly yeah. life-giving. The exact same energy can be life-threatening or life-giving. Because if yes. I'm in an area that has died as a result of a lack of appropriate effort to cultivate what that soil has available to it, then bur- burning the yes. field is actually a reset. It's really, really important mm-hmm. if you're doing it on purpose with the intention of resetting yeah. the ground and resetting the soil. But if you just mm-hmm. light a mm-hmm. match and you walk away because you don't care about being Smokey Bear, right? <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. eight with mm-hmm. one wing, nine, nine wing is a bear, right? So if you're only trying to survive, keep yourself alive, then you don't know that resetting that, setting that fire and resetting that soil can be really, really helpful. It's also important from a fire mm-hmm. analogy that the only, the whole experience of being a phoenix is tied to eight energy. You can burn, you can burn mm-hmm. a strong eight all the way to the ground, kill them, bury their ashes, and they will figure out a way to come back from that. That's the way that they're wired, mm-hmm. right? So that, yeah. that kind of innate kind of uh, fire-based incendiary space is that a nine can burn you and be incendiary, or if they decide mm-hmm. to put that energy toward, like my dad was a foundryman. He knew how to work with 2,500 degree metal and channel it into something beautiful, but it also got us mm-hmm. hurt a lot growing up. Yeah. So I just yeah. say for what yeah. it's worth, I love that you have a connection with what that energy feels like. It's also available yeah. to you as a good thing. At which point our phone line got disconnected. Please hold. 
<laughs> Let's just work with that. Yeah. Let's just find the joke in everything. <laughs> Or I'll cry. Exactly. Speaking that's of it. which, <laughs> I'm glad we got cut off because I was so getting emotional. <laughs> oh, I know. Isn't that wild? Depending on the way that you're wired, that the getting interrupted in the midst of your emotion can be a can be a life a relief. Thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, safe. and you know, I got unsafe. a chance to uh, think about it, and I think it's just because the truth is that I know that when we bring fire, it brings healing. I know that. But the problem is that nobody wants it at the time because right. it hurts. And so the truth is we often don't ever know we did good um, or we find out way later and we have to sit in this period of time where we know they didn't want it. We we knew it was good for them, but they didn't want it and we're just hated for it. And so it just feels like all all we're doing is causing harm even though deep down we know it was what was needed you know what i mean it's just so painful the delay is painful yeah no it's it's incredibly difficult it's like when i talk to the families that i work with and they're trying to figure out how to engage with their kids especially around discipline and especially around mm -hmm. around boundaries yeah um i always tell them you can be the right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing and the thing is is you can be doing the right thing but for that person they feel like it's the wrong time and only does hindsight tell you that it was the right time. So yes. it always is experienced as the wrong thing. But if you want it to be the right time, the right thing at the right time, so it is the right thing. Yeah. If, if you, if you preload it with permission, but you then preload it with awareness or attention, everything changes. So most of the time, like when I'm working with a kid, who is just losing their mind, right? I specialize in pediatric head injury or nonverbal autism and some kids can't speak. They're really mm -hmm. angry, they're really aggressive. If I can capture their attention and just for a second say, sit with me, be with me. And before, mm -hmm. I, sh before I demand compliance or I shove them into an uncomfortable space, I just ask them to be present with me and then I get permission. Or if I can't get permission, I at least give them a heads up that it's coming no matter how fast you're going to do something, unless it's a truly life-threatening situation, you can always, generally speaking, give somebody seven to 10 seconds to get oriented. Yeah. And that's all it takes, right? So it's, it's, it's one of those things where, especially for strong, capable eights, and this is for every number on the Enneagram, but everything changes when there's a felt sense of permission and consent. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the hardest things to get, especially when you're trying to recommend something so difficult to somebody that they yeah. don't they don't think they can or want to give consent. And mm -hmm. then you and then you got to go. Well, this is really for your own good. You know, it's a it's a hard balance for sure. Yeah, it doesn't help that I started to practice that very thing because I knew that that was what was missing is the permission piece. And even asking permission to proceed caused a problem yeah. <laughs> because there was a projection of what was coming yeah. or something. And I was like, wow, yeah, <laughs> can't win. No. And that's the <laughs> thing. It's, it's moving into those spaces of going, okay, uh, how many times have I practiced the alternative or what's my yeah, current no. kind of familiar protocol and then going, well, I, I, I have attempted this permission thing a total of like never compared to what my brain is <laughs> considering it relative. I just, finished, I, I just finished a 90 minute profile with somebody who's very low in one in eight. Okay. Um, it's his two lowest numbers. And he was like, well, what is it? What does it look like? to be able to do anything, to get anything done. Cause I just feel like I'm a non-starter. 
I was like, well, you're mm-hmm. going to be a non-starter if you're lowest in eight and one. But the biggest thing <laughs> is to connect with the fact that you have you have the same fear in the one that a strong one has, right? That's actually the the right. amazing the amazing thing is if it's a low number for you, or it's a high number for you. You actually have the same fear. And for mm-hmm. somebody who's high in a one, that it's never going to be good enough. I was like, the difference for you is you realize that if it's never going to be good enough, the best way to avoid being judged or criticized is just not to start. Right? Yeah. yeah. For somebody who's high yeah. in a one, is to never stop. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so it's like mm-hmm. same problem. You know, same thing. Oh, yeah. Same thing with the eight. So we're, we have all of our own confirmation bias, right? Um, so we were like getting on board with the five and six. Yeah. And how I'm supposed to access that. Yeah. So with the five and the six, the coming back to the Formula One analogy um, is you're still in the car. You're still going 200 miles an hour. You're still really good at it. You're trying not to crash or run anybody off the road or run anybody over. But the reality is to check in with five and six is five is the space on the Enneagram that deals with self-discipline, deals with restraint, deals with boundaries, but also when it's outside of your own body, it deals with mentorship and teachability. So when you, hmm. want, to, when you want to engage with five in the Formula One analogy of the eight, which five is a direct line for eight, right? You want to be able to go, who is giving me good and reliable advice that I can trust? So you're Mm -hmm. the driver in the Formula One car that is the vehicle of your own lived experience. But the reality is, who is your pit boss? Who is somebody that while you're in the middle of running that race, you are willing to listen to if they speak into Mm -hmm. you, right? Mm -hmm. And then the, the six, the six is your team. It's your pit crew. The reality is, is when you're in that race, you have to have a support team that can resource you. Eights burn through resources at the fastest rate of any number on the Enneagram. They're unadulterated gas, right? Mm-hmm. They're, not fuel mm-hmm. con- they're not fuel conservation or preservation. They're fuel utilization. So if an eight doesn't realize that they are running out of fuel as a state of being and they don't have a support team or a support system, this is why sixes are so good in systems, right? If you mm-hmm. if you don't have systems in place that will allow you to put yourself into a position to refuel, then you don't have a pit crew, right? So you can be the driver, you can be in a fast car, but you better have a pit boss who can speak to you in five and a pit crew who can support you in six as a strategy and a plan. But that's when you see the wing come in for the nine that's so polarized, but so relevant for eight, is that a pit stop is eight seconds or less. It's not eight days. It's not eight minutes. It's mm-hmm. not eight years. It's mm-hmm. eight seconds. And you know what it takes to, to do? What, what did I say at the beginning? It don't, but you can do once. It only takes eight seconds. Do you remember? It, yeah. It breathes, yeah. Right? That's it. Yeah. So you know how an eight keeps taking a pit stop, drops into the mm-hmm. nine, nine wing, and then also gets five and six. They just take mm-hmm. a single deep breath, and they're willing in that single deep breath to receive input from other people, to do mm-hmm. self-discipline in the five and set boundaries and restraints. And then also to say, what's the plan? What's the strategy? And do I have support and systems in place? That's the six. And then if they want to drop into the wing of the seven, it's how do I celebrate what I did and feel inspired and enthusiastic about it, but also know that I can be a touch more lighthearted, right? Like Mm -hmm. a, a parent who's enacting a discipline, but isn't doing it through shame, fear, and intimidation. They're doing it through exhortation is a very, mm-hmm. very condemnation and exhortation are not the same thing. Right, an yeah. an eight that can take a deep breath and offer a touch of I still love you. We're still connected. I am so enthusiastic about you, and 
I'm leaning into my five to establish a boundary and mentor and disciple you well, because discipleship and discipline have the same root word for a reason. So you see all of mm-hmm. those things coming into play for the eight at the same time. By six, by a team, do you mean like having a, a very intentional roles that you're letting people play in your life? Or do you mean like an actual group that's that you're interacting with regularly? Is it like individuals that you just have let in so far that they can speak into your life? I think that's part of it. Yes. I think and here's a way that I always look at everything on the Enneagram. I look at through four basic perspectives. Whatever question I ask, I ask, where does this live in me? Where does it live in the Mm -hmm. relationships close to me? Where does it live in everybody else? And where does it live in the big picture? So I call it internal, Mm -hmm. local, regional, and global. What that means is if I say, do I have systems that I need? And do I have a plan that I need? That's an internal six question that an eight is asking. So what I mean by that is when you're talking about other people, the internal versus external conversation is internal is what do I need to do with that piece of information? Six is a planning strategy forecasting space. What do I need to plan, strategize, and forecast? If it's external, you're saying what is within reach? Is it a resource that's in reach? Is it a person that's within reach, right? And then what's the slightly mm-hmm. bigger picture? What regionally around me do I have available that I can move towards? Or especially as an eight, I'm willing to allow to move towards me, right? Because the protectiveness and the innate capacity, you got to understand as an eight energy, regardless of your instinct or your subtype, which are two different things, regardless of what you do as an eight, if somebody starts to move towards you and closes the proximity relationally or physically, Mm -hmm. your brain is Mm -hmm. automatically going to start to get skeptical of what their motivation is. So if Mm -hmm. somebody comes to resource you and somebody offers to support you, it's understandable for an eight to be skeptical first, but they, they got to be careful to bark a bit more than bite. And eight, mm-hmm. eight energy tends to bite first and ask questions second or shoot first and ask mm-hmm. questions second. But that's the, that's the sixth space, being able to go into that thinking space and, and not be reactive in the eight, but have the opportunity to think in the six, what is that person's intent? Are they here to support mm-hmm. me? Do they have resources that I don't have? And more than anything, I mean, that's where trust comes in. You, you mentioned earlier, trust for an eight is a wholly different type of trauma or heavy lift or challenging space because you can trust yourself, but six is quintessentially about trusting other people. It's not a, Ugh. it's different. So if you're low in six, you have to be willing to trust other people and put yourself into one of the most difficult spaces as an eight on the planet, which is to be vulnerable, right? Yeah. And you, yeah. and you realize the root. When to hurt, like to be willing to yeah, really hurt. to really hurt. I mean, I, uh, our listeners have heard me say this, but the tricky thing with me is I, I know intuitively what I need and I know I need mentorship and I need a team because it's the thing that I find most <laughs> unpleasant, right? Yeah. Like I've avoided it. Yeah. And in my older years, I've gone looking for it like a little chick, like, will you be yeah. my mentor? Will you be my team? And and there's just been hurt. Yeah. There's just been hurt. There's either been um, just, you know, no, actually, I, I just don't think I can do that for you. Or there's sure. And then they don't follow through or it, it's just ache upon ache of having like mustered up the courage to do it. And then um, so I find that's the, the tricky thing with eight energy is I will muster up what it takes to have the courage to do it once, maybe twice. Yeah. And then the pain of what comes from not 
making the cut or doing what I was hoping it would do means that I probably won't try again, at least not for a long time. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm sitting. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the that first, I would say that that's that awareness and that understanding is the most important piece in terms of how we rewire things neurologically. You know, there's mm-hmm. a there's a really interesting concept explained through a book by Rick Hansen and Buddha's Brain. It's a book called Buddha's Brain, called Velcro and Teflon. And what mm. it what it means is that the the human brain is designed to associate pain the same way that Velcro works, but it's associating okay. pleasure the same way that Teflon works. So anytime you even remotely have even the slightest idea of pain, your brain will attach to it like Velcro on fuzz, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But if yep. you're, it takes milliseconds, 15 to 30 milliseconds on average for you to even wreck. And just to give you an idea, it takes about 160 to 200 milliseconds to do a voluntary eye movement. So you're talking a mm-hmm. quarter of that time to recognize pain. It's that subconscious. It's that innate. Yeah. But yeah. To, to, yeah. to hold on to the potential of a positive encounter takes 15 sustained seconds, right? Yeah. So you're talking, mm-hmm. you're, you're talking 15 milliseconds compared to 1500 milliseconds for pain and pleasure. Mm-hmm. Right? One of the things that I've mentioned to you as an analogy um, for what you just expressed. And the reason I mentioned mm-hmm. that with Buddha's brain, just to come back, the first step in being able to rewire things is just to notice your negativity bias, meaning oh, yeah. before you even fix it, just name it. I have trouble connecting with a mentor because I've been vulnerable in the past and I opened myself up and I got Mm -hmm. hurt for it. And I don't feel safe Mm -hmm. doing that. That's really relevant. Mm -hmm. And it's also not wrong, right? It's your truth. It's your Mm -hmm. lived experience. So you name it. But the reality is in being able to engage it, your brain has to believe that there's a possibility that there is a realistic way to do it and not be injured. So one of the examples that I give Mm -hmm. is if you travel to a foreign country and you had a really, really, really bad experience with one particular person in that country, would you assume that everybody from that country is the same way? Generally speaking, we wouldn't. Yeah. But from a tribalistic standpoint, how many times, especially in what we've seen in the last year in the US alone, how many times has somebody mm-hmm. seen one particular person from one particular demographic, ethnic background, racial background, and they whitewash or blanket statement that everybody from that culture, that background, that political party or that belief system must be the same, right? Mm-hmm. That we all know naturally and intrinsically that that's not true, but our bi- right. our bias is understandable. So if you say to yourself, "Look, every time I go to the country that's associated with six energy, I've just so far I've had bad experiences." Mm-hmm. But have I had bad experiences yep. with everybody who is in that energy, or have I just had bad experiences with people who happen to be that number? Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And then just have the courage to go back in again and again. (laughs) Yeah. And the reality is also the beautiful thing with aid energy, right? Is aid energy is so reactive and so strong that if it has Mm -hmm. a positive encounter with something that was previously harmful or vulnerable, Mm -hmm. they have the same strong response that a five does. A five is the most skeptical person on the planet about something that they don't (laughs) trust and so is AIDS, mm-hmm. but it's body-based skepticism yeah. versus intellectual. But man, if you get a five on your side in terms of what they believe you do, they are the most mm-hmm. powerful advocates on the planet. If I have an eight have a positive experience with mentorship and they haven't had it before, whoever they build relationship mm-hmm. with, they will be so protective of because they know that it's so yes. rare, right? Yes. It exists. It's like it, it undoes everything that came before. No, the positive experience overwrites instantly all the everything. pain. Everything. 
yeah, with AIDS. Absolutely. It's so weird. Absolutely. It's because I refer to it as an oasis versus mirage. Up to this point, mm-hmm. you've had mirages, but you haven't had oasis, meaning that you're in mm-hmm. the desert of the experience. As an eight, you can handle being in the desert. You can survive pretty much anything. But the pain of being yeah. in the experience that when you travel to a six space, it feels like a desert experience. There's not a lot of fruit there. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of viability there. And then every time you're mm-hmm. like, oh, that looks like a mentor. It looks like an opportunity to engage. It feels like it's a reality. It slips through your hands and you realize it's a mirage. It wasn't real. And that's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. But then if you mm-hmm. actually do it and it's an oasis, how many times do you have to encounter an oasis for it to be a life-changing event? Yes, exactly. One, once, right? Yeah. That's also the thing, naming that it is very understandable and it is very mm-hmm. appropriate to have an innate fear and mistrust for the potential of healthy mentorship is at this stage, very, very, very healthy. If, mm-hmm. if you elect consciously, and this is where eights, you got to understand eights in both points of connection for both five and two have to get out of reactivity. They don't stay healthy by mm-hmm. staying in reactivity. They have to think and feel no. their way out of it. So if you mm-hmm. if you think for it about it and you f- connect to what you emotionally, consciously understand to be true about how you feel, at the mm-hmm. heart of what it is, if it's really boiled down to the core of it, there is still an innate desire for that kind of mentorship. So if that's the truth, then the question isn't whether or not it's understandable and appropriate if you're avoiding it. It's whether or not there's enough benefit to pursue it one more time. Is the risk worth the reward? And ultimately, at the end of our lives, the answer is yes, but that doesn't make it any easier to do. In fact, it makes it even harder because now you're hopeful, Mm -hmm. but you don't have access. And that's hard, (laughs) right? Yes. I get that. I've been a patient for 20 20 years. If you're talking to somebody who's like, oh, yeah, no, that's that's great. The the outcomes don't match my effort. And and I still feel like I'm dying. But sure, why don't you go ahead and give me, a, give me a platitude and tell me it's going to be okay. It's not. Right? I was I was wrestling with whether to ask how your health was because I don't even want you to talk about it because I know how much it like, hurts. Yeah, no, it I, hurts me to listen to. So I can yeah, no, I appreciate it. Oh, so I won't. I won't. No, you're good. You're good. Let's let's just say it's uh, it's been a hard year and I'm still here. Uh, I'm still here. I, I'm exercising my yeah. eight. I'm still, mm-hmm. I'm still here. And eight is, eight is, yeah. eight is not a high number for me. Um, yeah, it's grit. It's just pure grit. Yeah. Eh? Just gritting it out. Fortitude. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a prayer and I do pray for you. I appreciate that. I receive it. Yeah, I actually like tapped into my feelings when I felt your pain over the hope and the like dashing of the hope with that. Oh totally. my goodness. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Did you catch that? Any of you who've been dealing with chronic pain, Jerome Loba is definitely someone who can relate. Head over to his podcast and you'll hear the whole story. So we've gotten through three of the nine numbers. More to come in part two. That's it for today. We hope by now you've realized there's a lot more going on under the surface. And you'll continue to follow along as we take you inside the armor. (laughs) 